Thanks for having me. I took a lot of philosophy classes with Dougal back between 1998 and 1999. It's been about 13 years since I took a class with Dougal, and he almost derailed my science education with all of his philosophical wanderings. And I had so much fun in his classes that I could hardly pay attention in my chemistry and biology classes. But I ended up getting a degree in chemistry and took a lot of philosophy but never got a degree or a minor or anything like that in it, but love philosophy. It has been 13 years since I took a philosophy class, and so this won't be your typical philosophical presentation. I do intend to draw on philosophy a bit, but also on chemistry, science, personal experience, history, some different areas, and I want to try and heed the biblical warning. I'm not going to try and prove to you anything from Scripture, but I'll share a couple Scriptures as we go. And to start with, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Don't be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies. It's Dugald's favorite verse. And so, <laughs> and so what I like to try and do is look at the big picture of what's going on. I think philosophy is wonderful, but it can only take us so far. Science similarly is wonderful, but it can only take us so far. Personal experience, same thing. I think together we can get a good picture. So I'll try and draw on all these areas as I talk today. Bear with me. I'll kind of go fast due to our lack of time, but I have a lot to share, and I hope that you get a lot out of it. I'll have some Q&A time afterwards, and I'll stay up till 6 if any of you want to stay longer. And if you'd like to get coffee and talk more at some other date, I'd love to do that as well. So as we start, I want to encourage you to have an open mind, not a biased presupposition. And I always say that I believe an honest heart, humble disposition, diligent search, and open mind lead to Jesus Christ. And I really fundamentally believe that. As we talked a minute ago about whether or not people would naturally come to belief in God. I believe God has so designed the universe to draw us into relationship with himself. And I'll explain that more. Many atheists, I don't believe, have an open mind. One example would be Gould's statement about the non-existence of God, saying that it is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. And there are many other quotes that come to mind from various atheists that I believe start with a bias or a presupposition of atheism and desire to come out with that in the end. So I would ask you, as we start, to be open-minded and to consider the different types of evidence that God gives us for himself. So let's start with atheism. As we talk today, I want to bring you from this point of atheism, because that's what the class is all about, to a point of agnosticism, and from there to a point of theism, and from there to a point of Christianity. I'll state my bias from the beginning. And so, starting with atheism, atheists have long tried to assume, I think, a sort of intellectual high ground. You look at the American Atheist logo, or the Secular Humanist Declaration, as evidence of that. And I believe that it is impossible to assert that intellectual high ground without first proving it. And I think... What does that mean, intellectual high ground? When atheists say things like, I'm an atheist because I'm intellectually fulfilled as an atheist. And you cannot be otherwise. I've heard kind of brash statements like that. I've never heard you say such a thing. But I do believe that a lot of times atheists fall into this kind of trap of assuming that atheism is the intellectually superior belief as opposed to or as compared with theism or Christianity. And I think that's wrong. I do think that we should look at the evidence for atheism just like we would look at the evidence for anything else. And I think the atheist has as much a burden of proof to prove their theory as anyone else. So evidence against atheism, as we start, the first evidence that I'll discuss is both philosophical and scientific in nature. Already today, Dylan discussed it a little bit, the cosmological argument for God's existence. We all know the basic form of it. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And I think getting around that is problematic for the atheist. And I, I think that they have to run into a few different issues. First, premise one, I think, cannot be disproved because to do so, the atheist must assert an infinite regression of causes. But nor proven. can't be proven either. Everything has a cause. No, there's no proof of that. No, but the empirical data suggests that's the best option because we never see anything uh, beginning to exist without a cause. And so if we're looking at the simplest well, or the most the corroborated theory, we would uh, expect the one that we see all around us. And drawing on science in the laboratory, we never expect causeless events to occur in the physical world around us. So I'd say it's the best option, is that nothing begins to exist without a cause. 
and You're open to people jumping absolutely. in and saying comments, aren't you? Yeah. Feel free if you want Actually, to. Actually, what about this? Since we do have a limited amount of time, why don't you write down questions and let's get to those at the end. I'll try and blaze through this. Oh, okay. Okay. Write down any questions that come up and then we'll definitely try and get to all of them. But I guess I'd say that instant I see something come into existence without a cause, I will gladly agree that that is a possibility, not to say that it would discredit the existence of God in itself. But I say that premise is valid, that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Similarly, the universe began to exist, and we know that to be the case. First, we know that entropy hasn't gone to infinity, drawing on science, and we know that everything is going towards entropy, so the universe is finite. We know that from science. Uh, second, we know from well, cosmic... Just, science doesn't know. <laughs> to be honest, you just you shouldn't say stuff like that. In what science sense? Science doesn't know whether the universe is an infinite sequence of, of uh, expansions and collapses or whatever. We actually science do. Expanses and collapses, the cyclical model... The cyclical model of the universe, the expansions and contractions, would, would require a geometrically curved universe. And NASA's WMAP measurements have confirmed to a 95% degree of certainty that we are in a geometrically flat universe. It's highly improbable to believe that we are in a geometrically curved universe that would allow big bangs and big crunches. And so the cyclical model has predominantly been rejected, although it is, I believe, still something that certain atheists would try and um, refer to I believe, to support their bias, not to follow the evidence where it leads. The best evidence is that we are in a geometrically flat universe that does not permit a cyclical uh, expansion contraction model. There are ways that universes could be generated, so it doesn't have to be an expansion and collapse of this particular one, but there are various proposals. Anyway, we shouldn't get off on this. I'll deal with some of those in a minute. Early yeah. to, to claim science should, has shown anything about the... The, the cosmic... The cosmic... things we have transitional I put it this way, <clears throat> the cosmic microwave background radiation, the expansion of the universe, various other data confirm that the universe had a starting point. Whether you want to call that the singularity, the Big Bang, you name it, it had a starting point. That starting point is the very instant in which everything that we know came to exist. Science tells us that's the best option, and it's corroborated by the evidence. Anything other than that could be hypothetically possible. It would not discredit the existence of God or disprove the existence of God, but the best science says that alternative options are not viable at this time. At this time, we know that the best science says the universe had a beginning a finite time ago out of nothing. And so that's, that's, that has theological implications, obviously. And at the same time, I think that it's reasonable to believe that. Einstein, this is a side note, but Einstein was so distraught with the theological implications of that that he formulated the famous cosmological constant to try and get out of it, later called that the biggest mistake of his career. Instead of following the evidence where it would lead, he tried to fudge the data to make it say what he wanted it to say. Other scientists do that today as well, and I'll mention them in a minute. In a minute. So the only way the atheist can wiggle out of this is to assert a big bang, big crunch model, a cyclical model, or a multiverse. Yeah. That might be one that you were thinking of. The multiverse situation is very problematic for the atheists in that it cannot be empirically verified by definition because science only operates within the natural universe around us, not other hypothetical universes. And similarly, if the atheist can't disprove God in this universe, he surely couldn't disprove God in some other universe that we can't even access. And if a God could exist in that other universe, then he'd be God by definition over all universes. And so I think the multiverse situation causes more problems for the atheist uh, than it creates answers. And it's empirically unverifiable. And again, like I said, the, cycl or the, yeah, the cyclical model also does not hold up with any of the modern science. So in other words, I think atheism at this point from that perspective is in a bad way. So this is where we see another unique approach. And this would be the something from nothing argument. And quoting from an article in Scientific American this past summer, Shermer writes, 
the nothing of the vacuum of space actually consists of subatomic space-time turbulence at extremely small distances measurable at the Planck scale, the length at which the structure of space-time is dominated by quantum gravity. And he goes on to describe this. In other words, energy, subatomic particles, quantum fields, turbulence, and the like are nothing. If we start defining nothing as something, and then turn around and say something came from nothing, all we're really doing is saying something came from something. And that's a big problem, and it's a problem that I think a uh, self-respecting intellectual would not fall into. I think that somebody would say, I'm not going to say something is coming from nothing and then define nothing as something. But we see a lot of people doing that. And I think that is just evidence of grasping at straws when there isn't better evidence at all. And he even gives away his bias in the beginning of that article, saying that we only appeal to natural answers, not to supernatural answers, and therefore giving away his metaphysical naturalist bias, and I'll discuss that in a minute, but I think that's significant. So both logic and science verify that the universe began to exist supernaturally out of nothing a finite time ago, and this, according to the laws of logic, I believe requires a first cause, so to say. That's what people have traditionally called God, um, however we decide to describe that. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, this wiggling out of the evidence, though, I think this grasping at straws is evidence of the depravity of the argument in itself. If that's the best they have, that's not good. Other examples of grasping at straws, uh, Everett's empty space argument, I think is peculiar or interesting, or the fact that if empty space were proof of God's non-existence, it seems that matter would be proof of God's existence, and we see matter all around us. So I think it's problematic. Or Victor Stenger's argument that radioactive decay is an example of an uncaused phenomenon. I don't think he would say that radioactive decay never, or that it began to exist uh, out of nothing. I don't think that he would say it's a, a causeless event, just that we don't see it beginning to exist in our time. Uh, similarly, Hawking's imaginary time theory, we have one of the most brilliant astrophysicists in history saying, well, if we just substitute imaginary numbers into our equations, we can get a curve instead of a singularity, and then there's no need for a beginning. When astrophysicists or when anyone starts to say, let's just throw in these numbers instead of what we actually have, that to me is a very weak argument. And it shows that he is willing to follow his bias rather than the evidence to get a desired conclusion. So anyway, grasping at straws, I think, is problematic, uh, to say the least. There's another logical problem that is maybe less compelling, but it's been described with atheism, Ravi Zacharias explains it this way. By definition, atheism is the doctrine of belief that there is no God. It is an affirmation of God's non-existence. This ought not to be confused with agnosticism, which claims not to know. Postulating the non-existence of God, atheism immediately commits the blunder of an absolute negation, which is self-contradictory. For to sustain the belief that there is no God, it has to demonstrate infinite knowledge, which is tantamount to saying, I have infinite knowledge, that there is no being in existence with infinite knowledge. So it's an interesting way of perceiving this whole argument, but Ravi Zacharias basically says, omniscience is required before one can disprove an omniscient, uh, infinite being, namely God. Uh, so atheism, by definition, from this logical standpoint, I think has a real problem. And Why isn't that Okay, so all I need to know to know something exists is my experience with it or the evidence that I've experienced of it. Whereas to know something does not exist, then I would have to know everything in the universe. So well, it's not... It's just evidential arguments. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you, the positive argument for God, so I, I agree with what Dylan's saying. The positive argument for God is just that there is some evidence for God's existence. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the, the negative argument against God is just there is some evidence against God. It's not... You, don't, you can't demand proof on one side and just inductive evidence on the other. So make them parallel. They're both inductive arguments, and there's some reason on both sides. So what I'm arguing against here is strong atheism. Oh, which is the claim that we have There is no that. God anywhere in the universe. Well, wait a minute. No, but the issue, and is, that's what the claim, the issue is the strength of the evidence for that. Does it have to be proof, or can it just be evidence? That is a evidence? very good differentiation. And I'll get into the difference between evidence and proof, but what Ravi is saying here is not that it's impossible to be an agnostic. 
about God's existence. But what he's saying is it is impossible to be a firm atheist. You cannot say... He seems to be making the claim that you can't know X doesn't exist if you don't share this property with X. So you can't know that God doesn't exist because you aren't omniscient. Exactly. You cannot know, you cannot prove God's non-existence without knowing everything. Look, I have reasonable grounds to think there aren't any unicorns, but I haven't been everywhere in the universe, and I don't have an yeah, he's never had a horn. I just have inductive evidence that there are likely no unicorns, and I can have that same kind of grounds for disbelief in God. And that would make you an agnostic, not a hard atheist. Okay, by your depth. So exactly. This is, no, well, this is, this is, right now we're dealing with atheism. We'll get to agnosticism in a minute. Yeah. No, and I think atheism. most of you will agree with this statement. Of atheism. If you mean atheism is like a wholesale proof that you think God doesn't exist in the same sense that yeah. we'll, we'll get more to it in a minute. Let me get, let me get back to the notes. So, atheism has another science problem. Science is a great way of learning about the material universe, but it is limited to the material universe. All right? Science can't disprove God, and I think most people would acknowledge that. God, by definition, is non-natural. Science only applies to what is natural in the universe. Uh, many make a terrible blunder of extrapolating metaphysical naturalism from methodological naturalism, which is a valid method of science, and it's how science is conducted. Uh, so met metaphysical naturalism should not hold um, any persuasive power until it itself is proven. It for sure shouldn't be a proof, or a good reason to believe it. Proof is always too strong. And I and I like yeah. I like that word because yeah. disproof of God would similarly be an unreasonable uh, claim, so to say. Well, I, I and we'll too. we'll get to the the uh, difference between proof and evidence in a minute because I think it's significant. I'm glad that you bring it up. So a few examples of why naturalism or metaphysical naturalism is false. First, as I mentioned before, by definition, science can't address anything outside of the natural universe. And so, it, by definition, it could not address any issue of metaphysical naturalism. Sorry, Hume. <laughs> Hume, I think, runs into trouble here. Second, the science itself leads us away from metaphysical naturalism. Evolution has been called the only game in town. In other words, the theory of evolution arises not because the evidence leads us there, but because if we assume metaphysical naturalism, we have to get there, and so this is the way we've gotten there. Does that make sense? And there are problems with metaphysical naturalism as evolution in academia, which has infiltrated much more than the biology halls, but it's actually infiltrated even coming back to my, theory, my area of expertise, theology. A lot of theologians have applied naturalism in their study of the Bible, so to say, in the text, which I think is absolutely wrong. But as we look at evolution as a whole, there are problems. There is an absence of transitionary species in the fossil record, an incredible absence. We and in the 19th century? <laughs> I'd love to talk more, but no, uh, not. And there is an incredible absence of transitionary species in the fossil record. And this is admitted by great, great, great experts in this field, Stephen Jay Gould being one of them, saying every paleontologist knows that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. And that's a direct quote. Right, but he just uses that to give evidence to his... For punctuated equilibrium, which by definition happens so quickly that there would be no evidence preserved in the fossil record. He arrived at PE because of the lack of evidence in the fossil record. And to say that that's not the case is, is ignorant about the science. Secondly, the apparatus of evolution, natural selection, is, in, is insufficient. Uh, gradual mutations, uh, positive mutations that increase the information in a species are non-existent. Okay? They can't be the mechanism. Similarly, life can't arise from non-life. We can get some organic molecules to come from nothing, not from nothing, but to come from the right kind of primordial conditions, but those are a long ways from uh, RNA or DNA. So to get to the building blocks of life or life itself, we come up with statistics that are literally hundreds if not thousands of times the universal probability bound, which is a problem for any scientist that wants to operate within the realm of statistics and possibility and probability. The existence of information and design is an issue too for naturalism because not only do those RNA and DNA strands come together even if we grant them the existence of those molecules, there's incredible design preserved 
and the nucleotide-based pairs and their sequences in every single living organism's RNA and DNA. Okay? So the existence of information and design is problematic yet again for naturalism, and not just in living organisms, but the constants that we see throughout the universe and so forth. Can you say again why it's problematic? I think it seems to me all you've said so far is we don't yet know how those mechanisms could arise naturally. You certainly haven't proven that they couldn't have arisen naturally. Oh, of course we can. So again, proof is is a hard hard way to go. But let's say we grant that all those nucleotide base pairs could be formed in the same place at the same time by natural processes. As a chemist, I don't believe that's possible. If you look at the reaction kinetics for any of that... Not from scratch. The the evolution doesn't... No, no, no. no. Absolutely. I'm saying from those organic molecules. Those nucleotide base pairs and the other aspects or the other molecules necessary for DNA would have to link up in uh, the right way. And they are formed in racemic mixtures of enantiomers, right and left-handedness. You said you don't, aren't excited about OCHEM. You'll learn all about it in OCHEM. But they are formed in nature in 50-50 mixtures. Right. To get 100,000 to link up in just one-handedness is problematic. And by the way, we've look, never... Look, look, God, that's such a distortion of the... No, no, no. We can look at, this, we can look at the statistics. Starting from a bunch of separate molecules that haven't already formed structures, you suddenly get a whole molecule hooked up in the right way. Nobody's claiming that. Of course they are. It's called chain elongation, and it is the problem of homochirality in life. And we're talking about a polymerization reaction of nucleotide monomers, and everybody is claiming this happened to start life. This is the only theory for abiogenesis, or the beginning of life from non-life. Okay, then I think I misunderstood what you were saying. I thought you were saying that somehow, from an original position of not having complex molecules around, suddenly we get... uh, No, 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 no. I'm saying let's grant that all those complex molecules exist together at the same place place and in the same time. Uh Now they need to polymerize out of a 50-50 mixture. The statistics for that are absolutely astonishing. And no sane scientist or statistician would say that they are probable or even possible. It's a very big problem for a naturalistic explanation, how we could get life from non-life. And I would say that, um, that it's much simpler to believe that life did not come from non-life. And then we can evaluate the implications of that statement at a later date. But that brings it, and then even if we could get those molecules to form, the information that they contain is still unexplained because you can have a random strand of nucleotides and it produces nothing significant. But in organisms with DNA, we get eyes and we get features and we get specified functions of organs. Not okay. What I'm saying though is this is the starting point of evolution. Evolution has to start with something. The the situation I'm describing is the supposed abiogenesis of the first living cell, which would be, which would be simpler than any cell that's ever been discovered. Now, from those, how they would combine into others, that's even more problematic, but maybe we can get there at a different time. We're just talking about the start. Naturalism has a problem. And then, of course, the start of the universe. I don't know if you want to go that route. That's, it's dangerous because what the step is, so it's hard we're trying to explain how life began, right? And it's improbable that it began by, na- by natural selection and evolution. So then you're going to say God was that starting point of life. That's a, diff- that's a, late- that's a later step. Right now I'm saying is it's... But is that the, step the statistics just to get the first strand of 100,000 nucleotide base pairs, and we've never seen an organism with fewer than 500,000, so we're giving them a lot. We're also giving them everything they need existing in the same time and at the same place, which is giving them a whole lot too. So we give them all that, and the statistics are 1 in 10 to the 37,000th power. The universal probability bound has been calculated between 10 to the 80th and 10 to the 200th. So this is literally, I think, uh, six or 800 times the number of elemental interactions in a 15-plus billion-year history of Earth, making it statistically uh, not possible. So yeah, and so ultimately we're going to want to say what influences that statistical probability is the mind of God or something. That's ultimately where we we'll want get there to. later. Yeah, that's yeah, a different that's, step, right? That's not that's what I'm trying to take right now. We're establishing this crazy probability, but then ultimately that's where you want to get. The problem then is, is then if you're going to say that, why didn't God just make 
Why, then, then you're assuming a lot about the mind of God. Then why didn't you? Why don't? Why didn't God do it a different way? Why I think He did do it a different way. Uh, I'm trying to show the problem with naturalism. Why don't we just uh, hop into you know like? So okay, let's. That's, what's that, that's, TJ? That's the, that's the problem with that yeah. strategy. That's why. Wait, 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 wait. What's the problem with but that? But will just deny that. He's just saying we'll give. I'm not. I'm not trying to prove what I believe here. I'm just trying to say that naturalism is fundamentally flawed at this point. Yeah, okay. That's what they have to have. Okay. I believe God created everything out of nothing, how He desired it to be, yeah. uh, according to the biblical description of creation in Genesis. Um, and there are different interpretations of that. But TJ, what's that? Uh, maybe um, what I was thinking is that maybe if you uh, continue along with your uh, events, that might answer all of our questions, because that might be, if I'm mishearing, um, it's almost like a battle of the titans over two questions, and those questions happen to deal with this one key part, and he says that answer could be developed later on, and also the difference between proof and evidence. And I would like to see uh, what the difference is between proof and evidence, cool. and also if there's any answer that is further explained. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. along in those notes. So maybe and hopefully we get there. <laughs> I'm looking at the clock. We have 30 minutes, and I want to get some time for a Q&A, too. And so I'm going to go fast, and I'm probably going to skip over all sorts of stuff. But... Going back to why naturalism is fundamentally flawed, there's, there's a final option. A single miracle in the history of the universe would disprove naturalism. And I believe the beginning of the universe out of nothing a finite time ago qualifies as that miracle. It has not happened since. And there are no natural laws that would explain how it would happen. In fact, any physicist would agree that natural laws were created at that point themselves. And so I believe fundamentally, that that would qualify as a miracle. Similarly, Christ's resurrection, and I hope to briefly mention it again today, is corroborated by history. And the evidence is stronger for his resurrection than the evidence against it. And that, again, would qualify as a miracle. Additionally, there are miracle claims throughout this universe. I've seen them on this campus. A student that, um, that I had the opportunity to, to help begin a relationship with Christ that Shortly thereafter, was diagnosed with testicular cancer. He came to me. I don't know what to think. I'm scared out of my mind. The doctor said I have to drop out of school. And I said, look, I, I believe in prayer. I don't believe that we always get the results that we expect, but we always get an answer, <laughs> yes or no. And I said, no matter what, I do want to pray that God would heal you of this, this cancer. And so we began praying. And I began having a lot of friends and family pray, students pray. And he disenrolled from school because the doctor said, you need to fully focus on your treatment because uh, this is going to take everything you have to fight this. He goes back in for his, his next round of treatment. They do the scan, the MRI, to see how it had progressed since the last appointment. Nothing was there. The student comes back to me and goes, I am completely baffled. The doctors say there's not a trace of the cancer. I don't have any clue what happened. And uh, so I've seen examples of this throughout my life. Another student who got into an, we went to Mexico together on a missions trip. We get back from spring break, and his brother fell on his head. The doctor, he broke his, uh, his skull here, severed an artery, bleeding on the brain. The doctor said he wouldn't live through the weekend. We began praying for him, and he, uh, by that Wednesday, was, was talking. By the next weekend, was walking. The doctors have all said to this day, they have no natural explanation for what occurred, that it was literally a miracle. Uh, just one miracle disproves naturalism. If ever one has happened, I suggest you check out Craig Keener's, Dr. Craig Keener's 1,000 uh, or 2,000 page volume titled Miracles. It's a scholarly volume of well-documented cases of miracles, and I believe it's worth, worth investigating. But just one miracle is all we need to disprove naturalism. So I think naturalism is standing on very shaky ground, and I think that uh, it is kind of connected at the hip, so to say, with atheism. That brings us to agnosticism. I'm going to try and go quick and, and blaze through some of these notes. Uh, the atheist at this point, I think, would try to turn the tables on the theist. Uh, Russell's teapot is a famous example. And Russell would say the burden of proof rests on the believer to give evidence for his belief in the existence of God, uh, saying, if I believed in a celestial teapot orbiting the sun, I would have to prove to you that it exists rather than you prove to me that it does not exist. And he would say that the theist is referring to um, the lack of proof against God's existence, or an argument from ignorance, so to say. I think what's problematic for Russell is he's committing the same blunder. He's saying, 
<laughs> there's no evidence for God's existence, and I believe there is. I believe he's wrong in that criticism, but he's saying there's no proof, maybe, for God's existence. And so uh, I'm not going to believe that God exists. He seems to fall into the same trap that he accuses the theist of, which I believe is why he was quick to admit his agnosticism over his atheism, which I think, going back to this, uh, we can't prove atheism, and by that token, we can't prove anything necessarily, uh, but we can give good evidence for faith in God, and I don't believe atheism has that evidence. We'll discuss more of that later. The bottom line, though, is Bertrand Russell understood this, and in 1947 said, as a philosopher, if I were speaking to a purely philosophic audience, I should say that I ought to describe myself as an agnostic because I do not think that there is a conclusive argument by which one can prove that there is not a God. Similarly, Dawkins, who I know all true philosophers recognize his uh, problems. He's a biologist. He's not a philosopher. But as the world's most famous atheist, he was intelligent enough to realize that he is only 6.9 out of 7 confident of God's non-existence. I think that was actually from this uh, very summer that he made that statement, acknowledging his agnosticism over his atheism as well. Even if there were a lack of evidence for God's existence, the atheist could not affirm his non-existence, just the inability to know, I believe. But I think that there is good evidence for God's existence. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, the mere questioner has knocked his head against the limits of human thought and cracked it. And I think sometimes we can get into such a situation with God where we try to overanalyze so much that we knock our head against the limits of human thought and crack it when we could just look around us at all the evidence. Evidence versus proof, and I think this is significant. I can't make God materialize in front of this room, and I think that there is a divine plan in that. I think that I know the human mind enough to know that even if I could, every one of us in this room would doubt that. I've seen God more real in my life, and I'll close with some experiences than I could ever possibly imagine, that I could ever possibly convince you of. He's demonstrated his reality to me so personally and so often. But my doubting human condition, and all of us have it, you will doubt about everything in this life. I'm sure you'll doubt about your career. You'll probably doubt about whether you married the right spouse. You'll probably doubt about whether you got the right degree in college. I don't use my chemistry degree. I often wonder. I have one of the highest paying degrees out of college, and I don't use it. And I'm making less than I made right out of college. <laughs> but... I have doubts that occasionally come up. Those are more a function of my human condition than my faith, if that makes sense. Now, when I look all around me, even though I can't make God materialize in front of this room, there is evidence of him throughout this universe. G.K. Chesterton, who I just quoted, puts it this way, God is like the sun. You cannot look at him, but without him, you cannot see anything else. Does that make sense? And I think that just like it's been a long time since I stared directly into the sun, <laughs> and I wouldn't suggest it, there's not been a minute that's gone by that I've seen without light. Okay? And so I think that there's evidence throughout this universe that is compelling. And that brings us, I think, to theism and to a theistic perspective on the universe. Obviously, there are some problems with theism as far as some arguments against it. I would say the problem of pain, suffering, and evil often comes up. I don't think that that is a problem for theism at all. I think if I assume that God wants us all to have happy, comfortable lives, then that would be a problem. The Bible doesn't state God wants us to have happy, comfortable lives. The Bible says that there is an existence far greater than anything on this planet that will be happy and fulfilling and without any kind of pain and suffering. But Jesus himself said, in this life, you will have trouble. It's not, when I see trouble, when I see pain, when I see evil, it doesn't bother me as far as making me doubt God. But it confirms to me the reality that this world needs God. God has given us a free will by which a lot of us have done a lot of evil, right? G.K. Chesterton, again, I hate to just put one guy this much in a, in a talk, but he answered an essay question in London about what's the problem with the world. And he won the essay contest with a two-word essay, I am. He realized the problem starts with me. That being said... There are other problems, the evil of believers. I think that there are a lot of terrible atrocities that have been perpetrated in the name of Christ. I don't think it's right to ever judge a philosophy by its abuse. When Jesus says, love your neighbor and love your enemy, 
then we should judge whether or not Christians did that. And if they hated their neighbor and hated and killed their enemy, they weren't being good Christians. They weren't following Christ's command. And they should not be judged as Christians, but rather as people that failed to obey Christ's command. We also can't neglect to look at the evils perpetrated in the name of atheism. Stalin, Mao, others. Um, I'm not saying that that in itself makes atheism wrong, just that that is not a valid criticism against Christianity or theism. Similarly, a lot of other arguments deal a lot with the assumptions about God's nature. In other words, if God existed, he would create such a perfect world that everybody would be happy. There would be no evil and suffering. That's assuming a whole lot about God's nature. As a Christian, I believe God wants people that will love him out of their own free will and who will become more and more like him every day. And I don't get to become more and more like Jesus without encountering problems in this life. As I learn to be patient, as I learn to trust him in the midst of struggles, I become more and more like him, and he becomes more and more real to me. So I expect a universe in which there will be suffering and pain for the purposes that God has said in, in the Bible that he has for us. So there are good answers for those. But what about some of the evidence for God? A few of you have mentioned it. Descartes would say, if you're thinking right and in a good environment, you'll naturally believe God exists. And Plantingo would say that God is a properly basic belief. Timothy Keller would put it more bluntly. <laughs> He'd say, you believe in God. Quit trying to argue yourself out of it. And whether or not that's the case for you, ontological arguments aren't my favorite. <laughs> I do think they're worth considering. I don't think they're the weightiest arguments. There are many others. Again, we talked about the cosmological argument for God's existence. And this universe coming from nothing a finite time ago implies an omnipotent, all-powerful creator. It implies an omniscient, all-knowing creator because all information, knowledge, and design came from this being. It implies an omnipresent creator because all space was created at creation. It implies eternality concerning the creator because time itself was created at the moment of creation. Similarly, I believe it implies benevolence on the part of the creator to create a universe in which human beings could grow and learn and, and enjoy life and discover about God himself. All those are the characteristics that we see attributed to God in the Bible. There are other evidences or arguments for the existence of God as well. The teleological argument for God's existence, the fine-tuning of the universe, I believe is extremely compelling. And having studied science, it's more compelling than before I studied science. I don't think it could just be that good on accident. We see enough accidents and random chance to see that it never produces that. That was enough to convince Antony Flew, the quote-unquote most notorious atheist alive, <laughs> that God existed. He never came to faith in Christ, but he did come to faith in God and wrote, there is a God, how the most notorious atheist alive came to faith or came to belief. I don't remember how the subtitle went. Uh, ontological arguments for God's existence, again, not necessarily compelling, but they seem logically valid in a sense. Um, transcendental arguments for God's existence, I think, are worth considering, too. Logical laws, I believe, require a logical lawgiver or a standard uh, that is, the, is from where all logical laws derive, or scientific laws, or moral laws. I think these laws require a lawgiver. Again, that moral law was sufficient to convince C.S. Lewis to come to Christ, right? Um, it was sufficient to convince Francis Collins, who's arguably one of the most important, important scientists of the last century to come to faith in Christ. Francis Collins, who led the Human Genome Project, is an evangelical Christian, and he came to faith in Christ because of the moral, moral argument for God's existence. There wouldn't, there wouldn't be any moral truths without God to... Um, not him. binding moral truths, not objective and binding. I think that natural selection, for example, could account for certain moral predispositions or feelings, but it could not account for um, an objective and binding reason to follow those. Natural selection would still rule the day and might would still make right in, uh, in a natural selection type of atmosphere. All that comes to the point of if this God exists, I believe he would reveal himself to us both generally in nature, which I believe he has, all those characteristics present in nature. Scripture tells us that, that God's invisible attributes, again, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his eternality, all these things 
Scripture says are evidenced in the nature around us, but similarly, I believe God would reveal himself in a way that stands out from the rest, what we would call special or divine revelation. And I think that is the Bible, which stands out from all other texts, all other religious texts. Now, at risk of getting a little off track here, and I only have about 15 minutes to go, so I'm going to keep this going. Um, The Bible foretells the future. There are prophetic claims throughout Scripture. I'd love to talk about some of those specifically at the conclusion of this class. What's that, TJ? Talking about revelations. Okay, revelation is a whole different can of worms. Let's talk about some specifics, like prophecy about the Messiah. Um, that he would come from the line of David, that he'd be born in the, in, in the town of Bethlehem, that he would die by crucifixion, prophesied a thousand years before the Messiah came and before crucifixion was even invented as a form of capital punishment, or the fact that he would rise from the dead, or the prophecy that he would perform miracles, which similarly is actually preserved in history. Right? We have extra-biblical accounts for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Those corroborate the picture we see in the Gospels. Some of those would say that he was a sorcerer, but admitting that he had power over nature, that he performed miraculous or supernatural acts. That, too, was prophesied. Uh, Those are some of the prophecies. There are many more. The destruction of Tyre being a clear example, the rebuilding of Jerusalem by Cyrus, prophesied 100 years before Cyrus was born. Even his name was used. There are incredible prophecies in Scripture which can't just be ad hoc disregarded. See, if, if my presupposition is metaphysical naturalism, then I say prophecy can't happen. So I don't care what you say, it doesn't matter, because prophecy can't happen. And that's what the naturalist often does from a theological perspective. They say, we assume that the book of Daniel, because it is so prophetic, many scholars would argue that the book of Daniel prophesied the exact date that Jesus entered Jerusalem to be crucified, 490 years before the fact. I can walk through the math with you in a minute if you like. So Scott and it prophesies, it prophesies Alexander the Great in incredible detail. So naturalistic Theologists would say, well, since it's so detailed, we know it's post-written history. It post-dates Alexander the Great, because nobody could nail it that good. But then we find that Josephus actually references Alexander the Great being given a copy of the scroll of Daniel (laughs) and recognizing that it was prophetic about himself. So the best historian of the first century of that area telling us that it actually does predate him. And so the naturalist has an awful hard time trying to discredit the prophetic nature of that text. And it's similar throughout Scripture. And we are seeing some fulfilled in our lifetimes, like Israel becoming a nation again, prophesied in the last chapter of Isaiah, happening in one day by declaration of of the UN. I mean, very interesting things. Hebrew being restored as a language. All those things we've seen in the last 60 to 70 years, right? And there are a lot of others, but um, but it's a whole different can of worms to get into. Uh, The Bible is archaeologically accurate. It's been said that there's never been an archaeological find that's disproven anything in the Bible. The Bible's contradiction-free. Some people I know would come up with supposed contradictions, and I've found great answers for all of those. Okay, Most of them deal with the setting. A lot of people would would, uh, make a quick criticism of uh, a contradiction without actually looking into the setting that it was in and discovering what was really written. Uh, The Bible is translated correctly. We have the... Greek, many thousands of Greek documents from the first century A.D. and second and third centuries A.D. that we can compare our modern translations to. So that criticism falls apart. Similarly, there are scientific statements throughout the Bible, which from a science perspective, I can't help but see the fingerprints of God, the expansion of the universe, which Hubble discovered in the 1950s, described, I think, 11 separate times in the Bible. Uh, radioactive decay described by Peter, a first century fisherman, who obviously, I'm not claiming he understood radioactive decay. I'm not claiming the Bible is a science textbook, but I am claiming that it bears fingerprints of God, that, that there's no other explanation for it. So we, we find, I believe, compelling evidence to believe the Bible and its trustworthiness. Similarly, we find compelling evidence to believe that Jesus really lived on this planet. There's more evidence for Christ preserved in history than for Tiberius Caesar who ruled the known world during Christ's time. That's phenomenal. If you were to throw away all the New Testament documents, we would still have more extra-biblical evidence for Christ than for Tiberius Caesar. <laughs> I mean, it's fun. It's amazing. If you include the New Testament documents, which I don't think can just be thrown out ad hoc, they were eyewitness accounts or accounts from um, interviews with eyewitnesses, 
If we include the New Testament documents, we have four times as, as many historical documents for Christ than for Tiberius Caesar, who ruled the world of his time. So we know that he's historical. Similarly, if we look just at the resurrection, Habermas, who I've interviewed on my radio show, he's a wonderful philosopher. He chairs the Department of Philosophy at Liberty University, and he is the world-renowned expert on the evidence for the resurrection, has the 12 minimal facts that virtually all scholars agree on. Uh, secular, Christian, whatever, that he will argue those alone convincingly tell us that Jesus rose from the dead. And he's argued that successfully. He actually debated Anthony Flew on that topic and across the board was declared the winner of that debate. And I interviewed him about his relationship with Flew and how that developed over the years. But anyway, that being said, Bart Ehrman looks at the evidence for the resurrection and he puts it this way. Is my explanation of what they claimed and what they did very probable, trying to explain what might have happened to make it look like a resurrection, but not really a resurrection? He says, is my explanation very probable? And he admits, no. Okay, no, it's not very probable. From a strictly historical point, however, it is more probable than an actual resurrection. So what is he saying there? Metaphysical naturalism across the board. I don't believe that the evidence looks like he didn't rise from the dead. In fact, the evidence looks good that he did rise from the dead. But we know resurrections don't happen, so we won't go there. Does that make sense? Again, importing his metaphysical naturalist bias into his analysis of the evidence. I think that if we avoid that problem, we get to the conclusion that Jesus lived and he died and he rose from the dead and he offered you hope that nobody else could possibly offer you. And that's, I'm skipping over a lot here, but... The evidence is a priori in, in a large degree. And I want to talk to you about the experiential or a posteriori evidence, like I would in any relationship. If I had to prove to you that my wife loves me, I could come up with all sorts of arguments, and you could come up with all sorts of rebuttals, and we could argue till we were all dead. <laughs> or I could tell you my experience with my wife. And I think that evidence includes personal experience and the experience of the billions of theists and one billion plus Christians on this planet. So a few of the ways Christ relates to me. Gosh, I wish I had the rest of the day to talk to you guys. Um, God changes lives. He's changed my life. And I've watched him as I've worked with college students just like you change you guys. I know students this, this year that just in this one semester I've seen so much change I cannot even explain to you how much they've changed. And they're not even trying, which is so wonderful. It's organic, if you will. Um, God relates to me personally at my level on a daily basis. I, I was supposed to die when I was born. Uh, I was born prematurely. I had a lung defect. I shouldn't be here today. I believe God healed me. Um, but God's related to me personally on my level throughout my life. God's living word covers everything. I have yet to find an issue that can't be answered from the pages of Scripture. It is far too comprehensive, in my view, to be a product of, of any human mind. Um, it answers all of life's existential questions that no other theory could. There's a reason that I exist and that you exist. And there's a purpose for me being here. And there's a way that I should live my life. And there's a promise of something so much greater at the end of it all. And it's not an empty promise. It's backed up by somebody that actually beat death. And the history confirms that. That's significant. God leads me daily. God teaches me daily. I can't tell you how uncanny it is. And if you talk to most Christians, you'll get these answers. How you'll encounter something in your life only to find out for the past several weeks God has been preparing you for that. Um, the Amendment 62 debate, after that there was a lot of fallout. And I got threatened with a lawsuit. And professors were writing my, names on, my name on boards and criticizing me in class. I heard I wasn't in those classes, of course. It was a couple years ago. It was a, a personhood amendment debate. Dylan was there that night. I was shook up. We had lunch after that debate, and I was internally agitated. I went back and looked at my journal, and for an entire month, everything I had written in my journal was, were verses like 1 Peter 4.19. When you suffer for doing good, persevere and entrust yourself to your faithful creator and continue to do good. Verses like that where I realized God had been preparing me this entire time for what I was about to experience. Uh, this is far too personal for me to just write off. And I see this not just in my life, but in my wife's life and in all the students that I meet with where God relates to them on a very personal level. 
Um, God constantly prepares me for what is to come. He constantly comforts me. He provides for my very needs. I don't even know how to explain this. The preparing me for things to come, providing for things that I need. Several years ago, Dougal will remember this. God gave us a vision, literally a, a strong desire to raise $1 million and to start a, a ministry training center. And I had no idea why. This came out of about 10 days of prayer with one of my best friends. We did an overseas trip together. We went to Moldova, Romania, and Turkey, encouraged a bunch of different ministries there, and spent most of every night praying together. And at the end of that trip, we wrote down four or five things that we felt convinced that God was leading us to do. Within three weeks of getting back to this city, I was told, there's somebody that wants to give a property to you uh, to start a, a ministry training center. And then we said, well, what do you mean by give? And it turns out we need to take over the loan of $400,000. So we got some contractors up there to evaluate what it would cost. They, would, they said $600,000 more. Bingo. Within three weeks of writing down that, that we should raise a million dollars and develop a ministry training center, here we are being given a ministry training center and needing $1 million. And then not only did God give us that vision, I'm not kidding you, in two months God provided a million dollars for what he had led us beforehand to trust him with. I mean, these things are far too personal for me to just write off. And they're evidence for God's existence. Okay, he guides me in prayer. He'll bring people to mind. This happened a couple days ago. Twice somebody came to my mind. I was praying for this person. And within the hour, I run into his wife at Walmart. And I haven't seen this lady in months. And I don't know. I don't put too much stock into this. But I did tell her. I do believe that, uh, that God's been uh, putting your husband on my mind and, and leading me to pray for him today. But you, you'll hear crazy stories about this. Anyway, God convicts me of sin more than you can possibly imagine. He restores my relationships and gives me fellowship with others, releases me from regret, gives me peace, gives me hope, satisfies me intellectually and in every other way, um, fulfills me more than anything. And ultimately, guys, I just got to tell you, Jesus himself says that anyone that comes to him and admits that they need a savior, he says, he will begin a relationship with you and guarantee you an eternal life with him based on your faith. And that's not based on proof. Timothy Keller in The Reason for God says, what if you have doubts about God's existence? And Timothy Keller says, and I love this, he says, your level of doubt or lack of doubt is not what determines your relationship with God. It's what you place your little faith in. Um, he says, what if you're sliding off a cliff and you have to grab a twig or a branch and you say, there's no way the branch could ever hold me, but I'm going to grab it anyway. And it does hold you and save you. It doesn't matter that you had a doubt. It matters that you exercised what little faith you had in the saving power of that twig. And he says, similarly with God, God's not waiting for you to have zero doubt and full proof, but rather He's saying, just come as you are and put your trust in me, and I will begin a personal relationship with you. I will forgive you of all your sins, not based on your perfection, but on what he did. He died at the cross to pay for your sin so that you could have an eternal life with him. Man, I wish I could talk more. Um, James 4.8 says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And Psalm 34.8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So I'm inviting you to say, engage him. Take a step towards him and let him prove himself to you in a way that arguments alone could never do, if that makes sense. And then my closing challenge, Jeremiah 29, 13, a book in the Old Testament says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. So again, going back to this issue of would God allow anyone to not know? Well, he doesn't say, I'm going to reveal myself in a big, huge, flashy way to every human being. But he says, if you seek with all your heart, you'll find me. So my encouragement is to seek with all your heart, and I believe you'll find him. That was long-winded. We skipped a lot. I wish, uh, I wish I could share more. I'm glad to share any other time to meet with you. But any last questions real quickly? And I'll stay as long as you want, but I know you've got to get out of here, so I want to respect that as well. Do you think that um, the intellectually curious atheist So if they think they're an atheist, and they're, mm -hmm. so one of their intellectual responsibilities, do you think maybe that is to try and enter a relationship with God? And then, L, if I'm an atheist and I try that wholeheartedly and genuinely, and I don't get these predictive goods, then I have even more reason to be an atheist. 
Uh, I've heard a lot of people bring that up. And the predictive goods are, are questionable because I can't make assumptions about what God's design is in all this, right? Um, but what I do know is if I come to God saying I'm an atheist and I'm just going to pray a prayer or push a button, I don't think that's going to cause anything. Uh, what he's asking is for me to put my faith in him. It's where I say I truly do put what little faith I have in your ability to do what you claim you will do. Um, so I think the atheist should probably investigate the evidence. So is there a genuine way then for an atheist who would want to try and enter a relationship with God to actually do so? Absolutely. I believe to start searching with all your heart as God promises. To start engaging the world as if that's a possibility, as if God might exist. And then attempting to be open-minded about seeing the evidence and where it might lead. And then when they feel that they can, with good conscience put what little faith they have in his ability to save them, to take that step, but to take it wholeheartedly. Um, just like marriage. Marriage isn't going to work if you go in saying, eh, this might work, we'll see. <laughs> you know? Um, okay. Caleb, I know you're going to have questions. Um, I didn't like, so you thought someone who thought it was 85% probable that God doesn't exist was an agnostic. So you think Dawkins is, is an agnostic, even though he thinks um, 6.9 you know, 6, 6. out of 7. So now, now we're, we're talking about a, semantics. Yeah, it's a semantical a question. Worry, he would say he's a philosophical agnostic, but that he's a well, practicing he atheist. That. He should say he's an atheist. Yeah, that, that would be his... I don't, I'm not saying that, that he believes that there's any possibility God exists. He's just willing to admit the fact that he cannot disprove, to use that word again, God's existence. So. Anybody else? I want to say, want to hear uh, how you respond to this. We all um, interpret what happens in the world by what we already know about the world. So if you have a strong belief in God, then you're likely to interpret what happens in the world as if it was caused by God. And that doesn't necessarily um, provide any experience for the existence of God. In fact, I think that's kind of a naturalistic... Um, explanation. What would you say about that? I would say as a Christian and as a theist, I'm okay with naturalistic explanations for all sorts of things. See, my bias is actually a lot more open-ended than the atheists. The atheist is predisposed towards only one outcome, naturalism. While I, as a Christian, I know that God created a natural universe that obeys natural laws that I believe he put in place, and I am not in the least bit confused when I see nature obeying the natural laws that are there. At the same time, I know sometimes that there are things that happen that are beyond the scope of nature itself. You know, take, for example, the beginning of the universe. So I'd say that I'm okay with both natural and supernatural explanations. So I would uh, think that my bias is less constraining. If somebody comes up with a good explanation for abiogenesis, that doesn't affect me one bit. Uh, I'd, I'd be fine with that. It wouldn't, I would say, yay, science. I love the beauty of science. It still doesn't tell me where the matter itself came from. Uh, it's just a neat explanation of some aspect of how the, nat the matter relates to itself and to other matter. Uh, so I'm okay with both natural and Chris supernatural explanations. That, um, you do approach uh, all of these questions with a bias, and that that colors what you what you judge to be good evidence and not good evidence. So the broader point is just that you clearly do have a kind of filter or a certain orientation in the way you look at the facts that you see. Absolutely. And I think, isn't that right? Yeah. And That's a great question. I'll put, it, I'll put it this way. We all have a bias. And I don't, I don't think it's possible to be bias-free, so to say. And I don't think it's possible to not look at the world through a set of lenses that we might have and I think we should try to be unbiased and to look uh, as indiscriminately as we can at the universe and try and make heads or tails of it, at the same time knowing that, that we are um, going to have a bias. Now, my bias is, hasn't led me to where I'm at. I can tell you that I grew up in a Christian family and had unbelievable amounts of doubt. I'm an, anal an analytical kind of guy. I have a chemistry degree, and I love philosophy. <laughs> I love these disciplines that maybe a lot of people... Uh, with uh, the theological bent might stray from or not, not be too inclined towards. That was my kind of perspective as, as a teenager and in college. 
And I really wanted to know why things are the way they are. And if I'm wrong, I want to know what's right. And so I don't think my bias alone uh, led me to where I'm at. I do think it influenced where I'm at, but I think that'd be the case for any one of us. But I, I can tell you with certainty that, um, that I've dealt with more doubt than anybody I know. And that's another way that God is so personally real in my life, is I've never found a doubt that I didn't find, in my own mind, good answers for. Sometimes there's been waiting. I know that a few, the issue that caused Bart Ehrman to, 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 um, to reject uh, Christianity uh, that kind of drove me batty for about a year, uh, and then I found some good answers to it. And so there have been times where doubt has persisted for quite a while, and I've never yet found something that, that, um, that didn't have an answer. But uh, I wouldn't say that, that my bias has blindly led me to where I'm at, but it, it um, no doubt has colored that. But I think that's the case for all of us. Hmm? I think in any really Cool. Thanks. Thanks so much, guys.